once again leading us so well. Well, today is our second sermon in our winter series on the book of Micah in the first half of the Bible. If you missed the very first sermon last week, I encourage you to go back, take a listen. There's some good foundational things there that kind of set up the study of the rest of the book. Well, you probably heard the term spaghetti western about cowboy movies made through the 1960s and the first couple years of the 1970s. Until this week, I'd, I'd heard the term, but I didn't understand what it meant. What, what's the spaghetti western thing? Well, it turns out that Italians became totally obsessed with the American Wild West of 100 years before in that period of the 1960s. And directors like Sergio Leone produced these gritty, tragic stories of the anti-hero. Totally Italian productions, but using a few key American actors, most famously Clint Eastwood. Now, there were probably in excess of 25 of these movies made. And they were all filmed in Spain and parts of Italy. So what were the Italians famous for in the minds of most Americans? Well, spaghetti, of course. So the Italians made the Westerns. They became known as spaghetti Westerns. And right now you're thinking, thank you, Pastor Darren, for that amazing piece of knowledge that's completely useless and will never help me in my life. You're totally welcome. All right, well, we're going to play you the soundtrack of the most famous spaghetti Western. And I want you to try to guess the title of the movie. Now, for some of our older folks, it's a good test to jog your memory. And for some of our younger folks, you need to know this. This is crucial knowledge of the history of film. You will sound so smart in class when your teacher asks, or maybe at university, or if your friends talk about it. I doubt they would, but it's possible. Uh, so, we are going to play this iconic soundtrack Put your answer in the comments on YouTube and Facebook. Here we go. We're going to crank it up and play the soundtrack. Most of you have probably had enough time now. You can uh, begin to put your guesses in there. All right, everyone had a chance? Okay, here's the big reveal. The answer is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes, well, we'll see how many of you got that right. Now, I wanted to accomplish more than just a quick little film history lesson here this morning. It turns out that that famous title, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, is actually the perfect 
phrase to capture what happens in Micah chapter 2, just in reverse order. The first five verses are the ugly. The next six verses are the bad. And the final two verses are the good. Well, let's do Sergio Leone, the director, proud and jump right in to our first point, the ugly. Imagine this scenario. You are the king or queen of a brand new country. You have taken over this land where a bunch of immoral criminals have been living. The criminals know their time is up. So when you show up, you got a big army, big show of force, they pack up and leave. Now, this land is pretty good farmland. There's lots of water, it's rich soil, lots of sunshine, crops will grow. Now, you have just rescued two million people out of slavery, and you're resettling them in this land. But you want to start the whole enterprise, you want to make it all function properly and sustainably right from the beginning. Now, you want a system that will be fair to give each family the opportunity to make their own living, to feed themselves, to have enough left over to sell, and generally establish a good life. How would you do it? That was roughly the scenario that God had when he gave the promised land, the land of Israel, to the Hebrew slaves he brought out of Egypt. God decided that each of the 12 tribes should be assigned an area based on the size of the tribe. Bigger tribes would get a bigger territory. Smaller tribes get a smaller territory. Families within those tribes would each get a plot of land. It's a beautiful, fair, and workable plan. It avoids being a welfare state on the one hand, where people are lazy, do nothing, and just kind of depend on the government to do everything for them. And it also avoids the opposite extreme, where the super rich people buy up the land and force everyone else just to be day laborers or workers, or at worst, slaves. Bible scholar Delbert R. Hillers summarizes it this way. He says, the economic and social ideal of ancient Israel was of a nation of free landholders, not debt slaves, sharecroppers, or hired workers. Instead, secure in possession as a grant from Yahweh, the one true God, of enough land to keep their families. It's a beautiful, brilliant plan. And it's explained in Numbers chapter 26. Beginning at verse 52, the Lord said to Moses, the land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to to the number of those listed. Be sure that the land is distributed by lot. What each group inherited inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. Each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among the larger and smaller groups. Now, the normal pattern was to pass the land down from father to son. The obvious question arises, so what if a family only had daughters, no sons? This is the exact situation for a man named Zelophehad and his daughters. Number 27 contains this fascinating little account and what God said to do about it. 
I'm thirsty this morning. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eliezer the, the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. The Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. Now, we kind of go, yeah, that's fair. That makes sense, of course. But that was pretty revolutionary in the ancient world. It was one more way that God's people were meant to be different than the cultures around them. So, fast forward 500 years, and this good plan worked fairly well for many years, but by the time of Micah, it had begun to go seriously wrong. Bible scholar Bruce Waltke has written the definitive commentary on the book of Micah, and this is how he captures this situation. He says, motivated by greed and armed with the ethical principle that might is right, the rich scheme to plunder and defraud Israel's stalwart men of their fields and homes. Micah is not a champion of the poor necessarily, but of the oppressed, in this case, the middle class. In that agrarian economy, a person's life depended on his fields, and for that reason, his inheritance was carefully safeguarded by the law. It was a sacred trust, not just another piece of real estate. If a person lost his fields, at best he might become a day laborer. At worst, he might become a slave. No wonder God is upset and confronts the oppressors through his spokesman, Micah. Now we're ready to hear Micah 2, 1-5. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes and rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be time of calamity. And that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you'll have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. We learned last week how that judgment's going to eventually play out. The nation of Assyria is gathering its forces it is the dominant war machine of the ancient Middle East. 
But even now, the kingdom of Judah has a chance. What will they do? Will they listen to God's warning? Will they take it to heart? Will they, will they do a 180 and change? Or will they ignore it? Now, it's generally true of human nature that when you are doing wrong and you are profiting from it, you don't like it when someone else comes along and points that out. It was true in 722 BC when Micah gave this prophecy, and it's also true today, 2021 AD. People tend to prefer to listen to the voices that approve of what they're doing. Not surprisingly, then, this next set of verses introduces us to false prophets who are proclaiming that don't listen to Micah, don't worry about these things he's saying, everything's fine. Let's listen to the false prophets as we pick it up in verse 6. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the ones whose ways are upright? And then the voice switches, and this is God speaking. Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy." Wow, harsh words. So we've looked at the ugly. Point number two is the bad. Now, verses six and seven are those false prophets pushing back against Micah's prophesying. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You can just see it occurring, can't you? These guys would essentially be saying, okay, everybody don't worry about it. Don't listen to Micah. That guy's a nut. He's always talking about doom, gloom. He's negative. We're fine. Nothing's going to happen to us. So what is the basis of this confidence, this self-confidence these false prophets have? Well, they appeal to their status and right as God's chosen people. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to those, to the ones whose ways are upright? You know, that's always the best strategy to spread false information. Just mix it in with a little bit of truth. Now, there are truths embedded in that. Is God patient? Yeah, absolutely. Talked about last week. God had given them over 500 years of chances. So much grace, so many warnings, so many uh, chances to, to kind of get back on track. Is it true that God's words are life-giving to those who follow him? Absolutely. But follow him is the correct term. Because God refuses to bless our actions when we are ripping other people off, oppressing the average person to make a living or stealing people's land at 10 cents on the dollar. God's character is against 
injustice. It's against evil. Oftentimes, declaring what is false and untrue can work for a little period of time, but the truth always has a way of coming out. In the mid-1970s, there was a man named Bob Harris. And Bob was struggling in life, trying to figure out what he wanted to do. And he, he saw these newscasters on TV, he heard them on the radio, and he thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be a weatherman. I want to be on one of those newscasts. I want to do the weather. And so Bob very audaciously applied to a radio station, WCBS, All News Radio AM 880 in New York. And then he eventually got on with the New York Times as well as their uh, go-to meteorologist. He brought some very impressive credentials to the table in getting these jobs. He told them he had a doctorate, a PhD from Columbia University, a master's degree from New York University, and a Bachelor of Science from the University of Buffalo. And the more Bob did this, he was a very engaging personality, and people liked hearing him on the radio. They liked reading him in the newspaper. He eventually got some things on TV, and he got pretty famous. And he actually, people started to refer to him as Dr. Bob, the weatherman. This is crazy. Major League Baseball eventually hired this guy to be their official weather forecaster, and so did the Long Island Railroad Company, running trains back and forth. It went on for several years, and then all of a sudden, one day, a letter came to the radio station, which prompted an inquiry and led to the discovery that Bob Harris didn't have any of those three degrees. Didn't have a bachelor's of science, didn't have a master's, and certainly didn't have a doctorate. After it all settled out, he was fired, let go, huge news everywhere. He lost his job, his marriage tanked. And here is what Bob Harris had to say many years later. He said, I took a shortcut that turned out to be the long way around. And one day the bill came due. I will be sorry as long as I am alive. What a powerful cautionary table tale. And Micah knows that the exact same thing is true for the kingdom of Judah. The bill was about to come due. God had given them so many chances. He'd been patient, been forgiving, merciful for over 500 years. But the nation has to do an immediate 180 turnaround or God is going to bring those Assyrians in judgment. Micah quotes God in verses 8 through 11. Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care. Like men returning from battle, you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. All right, so now we have a pretty solid understanding of what was happening 2,700 years ago in Micah's day. But what does it mean for us right here, right now? Well, I think there are two main lessons for us here. Number one, coveting what belongs to other people always ends in disaster. The rich coveted that land of the middle class. They were gobbling it up, turning landowners into day laborers or even 
at worst slaves, taking away their birthright. We cannot covet someone else's job or their hot girlfriend or their new Kawasaki Ninja motorcycle or their speedboat. Because the issue of the heart's desire is at the center of Jesus' command, commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does, doesn't want us to kind of meet the bare minimum standards. What people often say, well, you know, I haven't killed anybody. Uh, I haven't stolen anything and I haven't committed adultery. But Jesus says, you know what, the issues start with something deeper than that and the true issue is deeper. It's not that outward conformance, but inside. It's what do our hearts, where are they? What are they worshiping? Where are our desires at? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the most important commandment. Because the opposite, worshiping other gods, is at the root of why we break every other commandment. We worship things, so we steal. We worship pleasure, so we commit adultery. We worship power, so we kill. All right. Second lesson for us. Listening to the false voices that justify our sin will always end in disaster. Lying didn't work out for Bob the weatherman, and it won't work out for us in the long run either. Okay, so we've heard the ugly, we've heard the bad. Are you ready for the good? You ready for some good news? Well, God gives us that in the final two verses, beginning at verse 12. I will bring them together like sheep in a sheepfold, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Up until this point, there hasn't been a lot of good news in this passage. Points one, we clearly saw the problem, the rich trying to gobble up that land. Point two, we saw God's righteous anger against the false prophets. And here, God finally says, now let me tell you what I'm going to do. Once judgment has happened, I am a loving, merciful God. I'm going to gather the people together. What a beautiful picture. God as the shepherd. There's so many passages in Scripture refer to the Lord is my shepherd. And just like a shepherd in the fields has to protect, gather the sheep, God says, I'm going to gather them once again. I'm going to gather the nation. Now, if you think about it, it's actually God's character that is at issue here. God is totally holy. He's separate. He's perfect in his moral character. There's no sin that stains the character of God. So if God just kind of let all this injustice happen in the nation, if he let people abuse each other and do all these awful things, and God just kind of took a hands-off approach and did absolutely nothing about it, and the people rebel and flaunt their sin in God's face, you know what God has to, excuse me, God has to judge that sin. If God doesn't judge it, he ceases to be a holy God. He can't just kind of lift up the carpet and sweep it all underneath because God would cease to be a fair 
an impartial judge. It would be against his own character. Now, it's interesting that God says, okay, I've got to judge it, but that's not the end of the story. I'm going to give you hope. That, that beautiful picture, the comfort of God, as a good shepherd who gathers his people into a flock, into a sheep pen, is a beautiful, comforting, and caring picture. But God doesn't want to confine his people with no freedom. So once he's gathered them, it, the imagery changes, and it says God will personally break down the gate and he will lead out his people into joy and freedom. And that's true, isn't it? If you've ever gone through something horrible and horrendous in your life, what you need first is God's comfort and his care. You just need his loving arms around you like that good shepherd. We need to, to gather in safety and rest. But we aren't meant to stay in that place forever. Sometimes the gate needs to be broken down. The way needs to be opened up so that we can go on to live in freedom and joy. Well, we started this sermon talking about spaghetti westerns, and specifically that movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. There's a great scene where two main characters have to block the army of Confederate soldiers, Civil War fighters, so they can get over to the cemetery and dig up this unmarked grave which doesn't have a body, it's actually got all the gold that they've been searching for the whole movie. So they figure out, how are we going to get over there when that whole army's there? <gasps> we know we have to blow up the bridge so the army is trapped on the other side of the river. And so this is the scene where they blow up the bridge. Let's take a look. What a great scene. What a beautiful picture. The way through, sometimes the gate has to be blown apart. The, the way has to be opened up. And then God's people can realize their destiny, just like those two trying to get the gold. Okay, one last nerdy film fact. Okay, this is pretty funny. Apparently, in order to film that scene, the director, Sergio Leone, super fussy, wanted the exact right light so I had to wait for the sun to be in the perfect position to kind of shine on everything, light it up. So they built this whole bridge. They laid the dynamite. They had to go through all these safety things, all this stuff. And then the actors were actually a Spanish uh, army recruits. 
And so these were kind of your grunt army guys in the Spanish army. And so they dressed them up like American Confederate soldiers, had them all on this thing, and they're all ready to go. And the kind of the lead guy of this little battalion of guys they hired was the one officer in the group. And so they said, we will give him the honor of plunging the stick down and igniting the dynamite, blowing up the bridge. And so this guy, they said, listen, don't do it until you hear the Spanish word, vaya. And he goes, that's your signal. And he's like, okay, see, si, see, si, vaya. I won't do it until I hear vaya. And so he's totally ready. He's totally concentrating. He's got one job to do. And so there was a guy who was part of the special effects team, had worked hard setting up all the dynamite and the bridge and everything. And in this, as they're waiting, and apparently Clint Eastwood and the other actor up on the hill, and they're just waiting and waiting. Finally, the director's so fussy. They're like, just shoot the scene already. And so it's he, they're waiting. So the cameras weren't turned on. Nothing was, was ready to film because it was still probably another 25 minutes. And this special effects guy, carelessly in a conversation to somebody next to him, says, Vaya, <laughs> you should hurry up, get that ready. And so the other guy, whose one job it is to listen for the keyword, goes, Vaya, blows the bridge up. And it was a total disaster. The whole thing blew up. None of the cameras were turned on. And as the debris rains down and finally the smoke clears and everyone on set turns and looks at the director and they thought, what's he going to do? Is he just going to come unglued in anger? But like a classic Italian dude, he looks at it and he goes, well, let's go eat. <laughs> and they just went and ate dinner. I guess they had spaghetti, of course. What else would they eat? And they had to rebuild the bridge and film the scene. Okay, that was a long little side story. But the main idea, the main image I wanted you to capture was God breaking down the gate, bringing freedom and joy to his people. The Jews in Micah's day had to stand fast in their faith in God. They had to wait until his timing revealed the next step. Just like that guy with the dynamite had to wait until the key word. We as Christian believers 2,700 years later have to do the same. Even when things look bad, even when God is judging a period of history, we must remain solid in hope because God is still sovereign. He is still on the throne. He's still in control of world events. Listen to these words from Bible scholar Jan Oswald. There is no hope apart from judgment, and there's no judgment apart from hope. God, he will be just, and that means judgment. But he will be merciful, and that means hope. And hope comes through judgment. What else is the cross of Christ than the eternal vindication of the justice of God and the eternal proclamation of the mercy of God? There is hope because an all-powerful God who loves us is in charge of the future. He will not forsake his people. He will not forsake his own, but he will gather them to himself. The movie was titled The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, but Micah 2 and really all of history is the opposite order. The ugly has to be experienced first. The bad must be gone through 
before God in Christ finally brings the ultimate good. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break the way and go out. The king will pass through before them. The Lord at their head. Amen? Amen. Fernando, come and pray.